This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge. Welcome to The Philosopher's Zone. And I'm excited to let you know that this is the first program in a series called Philosophy in a Nutshell. We often think of philosophy as being all about systems and elaborate edifices of thought. But then there are those choice little phrases that stick in your head and sometimes contain an entire book's worth of meaning. And everyone knows at least a few of these. Descartes' I think, therefore I am. Or from Heraclitus, you can't step twice into the same river. Or Nietzsche, God is dead and we have killed him. So for each episode over the next few weeks, we're going to be taking a famous philosophical aphorism and pulling it apart to see how it works, but also tracing the history of its interpretation because these little nuggets of wisdom have a way of gathering new and sometimes unexpected meaning as they proceed through time. So that's all going to be happening from next week. This week, I want to take a sort of big picture perspective and look at the genre of aphoristic philosophy because it is a genre. There have been philosophers who wrote entire volumes of enigmatic short-form sayings on the understanding that sometimes the business of thinking should be about provocation rather than explication. And here to help me with this is Andrew Huey, who's Associate Professor of Humanities at Yale NUS College in Singapore. Andrew Huey is the author of a book that came out a couple of years ago titled A Theory of the Aphorism from Confucius to Twitter. I'm interested in aphorism because it's a provocation of thought, right? So uh, there are many short sayings and short forms in the world of literature, in the world of philosophy, in popular wisdom. But for me, an aphorism is something that demands an interpretation. It's as simple as that. So, of course, all things provoke interpretation. All things demand some sort of analysis. But the aphorisms that I'm interested in cause a spark of sort of wonderment or or puzzlement. And thereby, it opens new horizons of thinking. Right, so uh, there is a something about an aphorism where it's like an atom, right? Once you dissect it or once you blow it up, then you know it causes some sort of enormous explosion. It unsettles your mind in some way, right? It provokes it. It causes wonderment, uh, mystery. So it's that quantum of indeterminacy or this quantum of instability. And I guess when you say demands an interpretation, if you read a, a book or a longer paragraph. You could spend time churning through it and turning it over and over, but you can take a, a paragraph at, at, at face value, whereas with an aphorism, it's, it's very difficult to take it at face value because it has that enigmatic quality. That's right. And there's something about an aphorism that it's a reduction of that book, that paragraph, that page, right? So I'm interested in this process of concentration, like boiling something down to its essence. Friedrich Schlegel said that an aphorism should be complete in itself, like a hedgehog, which is something of an aphorism in itself. What did he mean by that? Yeah, it's kind of a meta-aphorism, right? It's an aphorism about an aphorism. I think we can kind of read this through another animal aphorism, uh, which is a very famous one by Archilochus. And this is one that I say Berlin made quite famous, right? The fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing, right? So I think Schlegel is drawing from this idea of the hedgehog, right? It knows one big thing. So an aphorism contains one nugget of idea, but it's it's solitary and uh, you have to work pretty hard to penetrate its inner meaning, right? In the sense that a hedgehog, it's both a cute animal, but it's something that is a bit prickly. And as you also point out, the word 
aphorism is etymologically connected to the Greek word for horizon. And and the thing about the horizon is that it, it's always receding from you. You never quite get there. Is that part of what an aphorism is? It has that elusive quality where it has no determinate or final meaning? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's why so many of the wisdom teachers of the world, whether it's Confucius, Jesus, or Buddha, used the aphorism as a vehicle to disseminate their thinking, right? Um, You could read the Gospels, but you can excerpt so many of Jesus' parables or or sayings or uh, from Buddha's sermons or from Confucius' Analects, and people have been interpreting them for millennia, right? And it's precisely because we can't ever capture at its inner essence or somehow its inner essence is different for every community of believers, every generation, every individual. So it's precisely that we're always on the edge of understanding something, but it always eludes our grasp. You make a distinction between the aphoristic style of philosophy and the more systematic style, and we'll go on to talk further about that in a minute. But if we look at something like Descartes, I think, therefore I am, that looks like an aphorism. It's it's dense and it's elusive. It invites interpretation. But at the same time, it's it's part of a grand system of thought from one of the great philosophical systematizers. So given that provenance, can we call that an aphorism? It's certainly a short saying, right? And maybe what we can say, it's a proposition, right? And the strength of the proposition lies in this grammatical uh, word, this, this punctum, right? Therefore, ergo, right? So that's the pivot. And certainly it demands interpretation and demands explication, which is why he spends the entire uh, discourse in the method and, and meditations on, on first philosophy um, in it. So maybe you can say that Descartes is a maximist, right? That he is very good at creating maxims. And maxims are basically rules and directions for the proper thinking of a mind. And indeed, one of his first works is called the Regulite, right? Rules for the Directions of Native Intelligence. And there you have lots of maxims, you have lots of rules, and he gives you lots of formula of how we can arrive at clear and certain uh, thoughts and knowledge. Another interesting point, I think, to make about aphorisms is is the way that they pick up meaning as they proceed through time. And the one that I like to think about at the moment is um, Simone de Beauvoir in The Second Sex. She writes that one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. That is highly apposite to contemporary debates around sex and gender that, that weren't being had when she wrote The Second Sex. Do you have any other examples of aphorisms that travel through time in that way and perhaps get more interesting as they get older? Yeah, um, certainly there are many um, aphorisms that have traveled beyond their original context. So one is, you know, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is within you, right? I've always, you know, loved this and I've thought about it for many years and I'm not sure if I have have arrived at any definitive understanding of it. It probably changes every day, every minute, dependent on my mood or when Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you, that means every single person. And so that means every single person is going to have their own version of the kingdom of God. And maybe I would just like to propose that the reason why there's been so much intramural conflict within Christianity for the better part of two millennia is precisely because everybody has their own notion of what the kingdom of God is, and we can never arrive at a consensus. 
Well, if we go back to the beginnings of the aphoristic style in Western philosophy, we start with the pre-Socratics in the 6th and 5th centuries BCE. I'm thinking of people like Parmenides and Heraclitus. They were highly cryptic. They wrote in fragments. But then not long afterwards, we come to the classical period of Plato and Aristotle, and they're the grand systematizers of Greek philosophy and quite hostile to the pre-Socratics. So what happened there? Why do we see this rupture? I think there is this rupture because, at least from Socrates, he was quite hostile to his predecessors. It's because he thought they were sophist, which means that they make the weaker argument stronger, right? They were uh, more interested in sounding clever. They were more interested in winning debates rather than the search for a transcendental good or the transcendental idea, right? And also in terms of method, right? These supposedly wise men like Parmenides, Heraclitus, and, and so forth went around the different cities and towns of Greece trying to sell their wisdom. And as you said, they spoke in these highly cryptic enigmatic sayings, whereas Socratic dialogue, right? It's always a dialogue. It's a conversation, right? So it's pretty hard to have a conversation with Heraclitus, for example, right? Because what Socrates says is that, well, if you um, try to ask them a question, they'll just shoot you back with another equally cryptic aphorism. That doesn't make for a very good dialogue, right? And it doesn't make for a very good system building. And then Plato and Aristotle comes along and they write much more expansive, much more systematic texts. And I think it's also a transition from a uh, oral culture of communication to a textual one, right? So I think that's another variable in this development. But if we compare the the writings of the pre-Socratics with Plato and Aristotle, say, we do, do we see is what we see predominantly a stylistic difference, where you just have you know aphoristic as opposed to systematic or dialogic, or does this stylistic difference signal a difference in the ideas as well? Mm. Well, metaphysics is style and style is metaphysics, right? (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, style is substance and and substance is style. So uh, I certainly believe in the homology or the analogy uh, between this more fragmentary uh, style or, uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe not. Um, So Heraclitus, you can either see him as, you know, someone who believes you can't ever step in the same river twice, right? Or his other aphorism is that all things are one. So is he a monist, right, or is he something else, right, or, or is he a relativist, right? And it's precisely because of the elusive quality of his thinking that makes him both so frustrating and fascinating. Yeah, and I guess that what he's outlining in that aphoristic style is a doctrine of uh, ceaseless change and flux, which, which I, I guess couldn't be more different from Plato's theory of forms. I mean, there, there's a fundamental difference there, isn't right, there? Right, 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 exactly. Yeah, so for Heraclitus, all things flow, right? It's all flux. Whereas Platonic philosophy is the search for the transcendental, the eternal forms, right? Which is beyond any accidents, beyond any change. And the point where interpretation stops. Right, right, exactly. Um you know, maybe for Platonic philosophy, the question becomes, when does dialogue ever end, right? And maybe this is uh, what motivates any of our conversation, right? That's why you have um, this radio show in which you interview people. There's always this interminable process of the ceaseless search for understanding. And so, yeah, philosophy in that sense is a series of endless and perhaps unanswerable questions. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I have thought before of the way in which doing a, a podcast or a radio show on philosophy that's interview-based is inevitably platonic, certainly in its form, if, if not its content, where, you know, I guess there's something about the aphorism that is really, it's just between you and the aphorism. You know, it, there's a more sort of, a more direct and personal engagement with the text itself. Is that, is that something that, will I be on the right track there? Yeah, I think so. And I would maybe just qualify that it's, it's both individual and communal. So Foucault has this idea of the huponemnita, right, which he draws from Hellenistic philosophy in that huponemnita is a um, body of sayings or jottings or, you know, this notebook you might keep in hand, right, that this commonplace book where you write down your favorite quotes or citations and so forth that you meditate on ceaselessly, right? And it's part of the care of the self, right? It's a practice of self-care. But, you know, it's not really fun to do philosophy by yourself. We always like to do it with other people, hence the conversation, right? Hence schools of philosophy, like the Platonists, the Aristotelians, the Stoics, Epicureans, and so forth. So I'm interested in the relationship between our individual engagement with an aphorism and a communal doctrine or dogma that surrounds it. Hence, you have you know, the Confucian school, right? You have the many branches of Nietzschean philosophy, right? So uh, there is something really interesting of how all the famous aphorists are so intensely individualistic, right? And yet uh, there is this cloud of epigonies or followers or disciples that surround them. And I'm really interested in the relationship between these two. On RN, you're in the Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and this is part one of Philosophy in a Nutshell, a series where we talk about philosophical aphorisms and the ways in which a compact little phrase can carry a lot of thought. My guest this week is Andrew Huey from Yale NUS College in Singapore. He's the author of A Theory of the Aphorism, From Confucius to Twitter. Well, if we leave the ancient Greeks for the moment and, and sort of take off through history, we see Western philosophy embarking on this trajectory of elaborative discourse, a, a will to, to clarity. But the aphoristic style never really goes away. And in your book, you, you write about how the aphorism comes before, against and after systematic philosophy. Now, we, we've seen how it comes before Plato and Aristotle. What about the against and the after? What do you want about there? Against and after, so we've talked about Descartes a little bit, and I think the great French aphorist of the 17th century, the philosophical one, is without a doubt Blaise Pascal, right? He writes this series of hundreds and hundreds of uh, short sayings, and sometimes they're no longer than three or four words, and sometimes they're more discursive paragraphs. But Pascal has this famous pensée that says, the heart has reasons which reasons does not understand. Right. And so uh, you can think of Pascal's entire philosophy as a resistance and a reaction to the Cartesian demand for a method. Right. He basically thinks our souls and our hearts are always filled with these passions and these irrationalities that cannot be codified or reduced to any uh, strict categories or uh, these neat little boxes. And so I think Pascal is certainly a thinker who comes who is a post-Cartesian philosopher. And Nietzsche, Nietzsche comes after these 
grand system builders in German idealism, like Kant, Hegel, and so forth. And so I think Nietzsche's style and Nietzsche's philosophy is very decisively a reaction to these enormous elephantine tombs of you know, Schopenhauer, Hegel, and so forth. You've written that aphorisms have a herd mentality and they work best in anthologies and, and collections and networks of thought. How is that the case? This is kind of the paradox of the aphorism. It tries to distill everything, right? It tries to minimize uh, language to its purest essence. But the aphorists were never content by just one aphorist. Because, right? I mean, maybe the ultimate, the most successful aphorist, would, uh, their fame would rest on a single aphorism, right? But I've yet to encounter an aphorist who's been able to do that yet. Which is to say that there's something about the aphoristic frame of mind that makes it conducive to generating a multiplicity of aphorisms, right? Uh, Nietzsche had notebooks and notebooks filled with them. His published writings are but a fraction of his entire output. The same for Pascal, right? When you look at Confucius Analects, there's a herd mentality in that they're bundled into an anthology and they've been used as didactic textbooks for millennia in the Chinese tradition, right? So we can hardly separate the original Confucius with Confucianism and Confucians. They all together comprise the tradition with a capital T. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. What are your thoughts? Well, I can see how that's the case. And yet, in a way, it's ironic that aphorisms are transmitted through the form of collections and anthologies, because there's something about a published collection of aphorisms that seems to run against the grain of how an aphorism is supposed to work. I mean, Schlegel didn't intend that his, his hedgehog should be found in the company of vast herds of other hedgehogs. Yeah, that's right. Um, nor did you know Nietzsche probably envision that his notebooks be published, right? And so there is something very paradoxical about the finality of any aphorism and how they're collected. I mean, we might want to take a step back and look at social media today. Every time we log into Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, right, we're bombarded with these micro sayings, and they do end up as quite chaotic, right? There is no finality to social media and their strength exists precisely through their going viral. Um, it's a virus that causes contagion that other people pick it up. It becomes an epidemic, as it were, right? So this growth becomes exponential. And so that's the power of the aphoristic form. It can be replicated in ways that a paragraph, a page, or a book can't precisely because it's so mobile. I want to talk a little bit more about Twitter, but first of all, if we can just go back to Confucius, who you mentioned earlier, a very interesting case because his work is, of course, highly aphoristic, but he's also hard to locate in a way beneath all the layers of interpretation that have been placed over him. And is that partly because he was so aphoristic? And if, if Confucius had laid out more of a systematic set of theories or doctrines, we'd have a better idea of what he actually thought, if, if indeed that matters. That's an excellent question. And I think the first thing to say is that, you know, when we read today, for example, the paperback translation of um, the Analects, right? It comes to us, you know, with just the sayings. But 
someone in pre-modern China would have never encountered Confucius sayings in that way. It would have came with a huge apparatus of commentaries that was on the margins as a supertext or subtext, right? And so a student would have never encountered Confucius in himself, right? It came loaded with the commentarial tradition itself. So I think with Confucius, it's pretty hard to disentangle the commentarial tradition because it's precisely the commentarial tradition and, and his disciples that perpetuated his thinking. But if we look at the way that the Chinese Communist Party has embraced Confucius in recent decades, they've sort of constructed a Confucius who supports authoritarian rule, who, who is all about a, a notion of harmony that consists of obedience to the governing order. Or, and it, it all seems to rest on a very limited cherry-picking interpretation of Confucius that's tailored to suit a certain kind of politics. And, of course, Nietzsche's sister did a similar sort of thing with his work when she, she turned him into a German nationalist. And I wonder if you think that an aphoristic style makes a philosopher more vulnerable to that kind of selective and, and detrimental reading. I mean, with the Chinese Communist Party, that's an interesting case because earlier Chinese communism in the beginning of the 20th century was variantly anti-Confucian because they thought Confucianism embodied feudalism, right? It had to do with, you know, foot binding. It had to do with the burden of tradition, of hierarchies, and so forth, right? And so, and it also had to do with imperialism, right? It had to do with the monarchy and, and dynastic history. Now, I think what the Chinese communist government are trying to do in a way is to find a an alternative to democratic liberal governance. And they see an alternative humanism in Confucius, right? That it's not based on Western uh, liberalism or democracy, right? It's another way of benevolent rule. And I, I think they just picked on Confucius because uh, there's a cult surrounding him. It's about the charisma. He is of the same stature as uh, Jesus or the Buddha, right? You can think of the many branches of, of Buddhism, right? The many denominations and sects of Christianity. And so they could have chosen like from the hundred contending schools of early Chinese philosophy, the legalist, the nominalist, um, Mencius or Taoism, right? Uh, they didn't go that path. They chose Confucius because his fame towers above Mencius and Sunzi and so forth. And I guess his aphoristic style makes him pliable. There's a, there's a sort of a malleability there, which is very convenient if you want to construct a philosopher in your own image. Exactly. I mean, um, look at Mao's little red book, right? It's a compilation of the chairman's uh, favorite sayings, and they're aphoristic and quite memorable. <laughs> What about Twitter? I mean, Twitter is is often dismissed as as glib and facile and with some good reason, I think, but it's also at least potentially a fertile training ground for the budding aphorist. You've got 280 characters. What is it about Twitter that interests you? What interests me about Twitter is its communicative possibilities. I'm interested in, well, I mean, I'm interested in as both media and medium, right? A medium of conveying thought, Right. So first there was oral culture and then there was literacy came to being and then, and then the printing press. Right. And so uh, this is a communicative revolution like Gutenberg. Right. So, I mean, today everybody can be an aphorist uh, as long as you have enough uh, followers and, and as long as you have enough people retweeting you. Right. And so there is this radical, for better or worse, democratization 
of who gets to be heard. And so I'm also interested in Twitter because of um, how the platform functions. We've talked about the power of uh, retweeting, but then there is also like the comment box and then there are sub comments, right? And so this in a way replays this commentarial tradition, right? Where you have the original uh, saying, you have the original um, aphorism, and then uh, lots of people comment and give your different interpretations on it. And then from that, a tradition does generate, right? So you have followers, right? These followers become disciples in that they amplify your thinking. And so this is the awesome power of Twitter that people have used and misused. Do you think there's a sense in which Twitter is to long-form publication what aphoristic philosophy is to systematic philosophy? Right. So, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, blogs were really popular. Yeah, right? yeah. I had a blog. I'm not sure if you ever had a blog, right? And they're just kind of like uh, kind of the, a diary form, right? And then people could subscribe to your blog, right? And you could subscribe to other people's blog, right? And, you know, blogs born very easily, but they die very easily, as well in that, you know, people just stop writing them. And it probably has to do with our attention span. We live in a time where there is a deficit of concentration and uh, Twitter, Facebook, and other forms of media, you know, makes this endless scrolling very easily, which is, again, an interesting contradistinction to what we were saying earlier of how it's very hard for all of us to read through an entire book of aphorisms. I guess to me this is where Twitter is is somehow counter aphoristic where where an aphorism asks us to stop and reflect and and suspend our desire for instant intellectual gratification whereas Twitter Twitter seems to be about the opposite of that you know a, a good tweet is a it's a bit of a sugar rush you know it's great to read but I I can't think of any tweets that have stayed with me for longer than it it, it took to read them Yeah I can't either right and so I mean, I have yet to find, I'm sure there are many out there, right? But I've yet to find the Twitterist, you know, um, of our time. We just haven't found our Nietzsche yet or our, our Confucius on Twitter. Right, exactly. You know, the owl of Minerva flies at midnight, right? And so maybe we can only find the Twitter aphorist, you know, um, after Twitter is gone. Well, Andrew, I'm just going to finish by asking quite simply, what's your favorite aphorism? My favorite aphorism is one by Nietzsche, which is, what good is a book that does not carry us beyond all books, right? So I think the purpose, the end of an aphorism is for it to self-annihilate. There's a way in which aphorisms are just instrumental, right? They're uh, things that get us through the day. And I think once that we've imbibed its lessons or even reject it or come up with our own aphorisms, we no longer need aphorisms. Well, I certainly hope your book isn't one of those self-annihilating artifacts because it's an excellent book, which I highly recommend. A Theory of the Aphorism from Confucius to Twitter by Andrew Huey. Andrew, thanks so much for coming on the program. Well, thank you, David. I'm, I've been really honored by this conversation. It's been really delightful. And Andrew Huey is Associate Professor in Humanities at Yale NUS College in Singapore. And this has been part one of Philosophy in a Nutshell. More short-form aphoristic fun next week when we take a closer look at Confucius. 
We don't really know a lot about Confucius, but his teachings have largely been transmitted in the form of short sayings. And the one we're going to look at has a really interesting bearing on contemporary Chinese society and politics. And more will be revealed next week here in the Philosopher's Zone. In the meantime, you can find us via the RN website or the ABC Listen app and listen to any of our past programs. And you can find me, David Rutledge, on Twitter any old time at David P Zone. Thanks for joining me this week. See you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.